When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is a crowd podcast. It's the day the music died. February 3rd, 1959. A plane goes down in a storm of snow and wind, five miles northwest of Mason City Airport, crashing headlong into a frozen cornfield in Iowa. It's just a little four-seater, There's a pilot, three passengers, all killed on impact. The passengers are musicians on the way from a concert in Clear Lake, Ohio, to their next gig in Moorhead, Minnesota. Not just any musicians, they're rock and roll stars, headliners on a winter tour of the Midwest. There's Richardson, known as the Big Bopper, a 28-year-old DJ who scored a novelty smash in 58 with Chantilly Lace, the one that starts with, hello, baby. And there's Richie Valens, just 17 years old. Pretty boy, Chicano teenage star, riding high on a rock-top version of Mexican folk song, La Bamba. And there's Buddy Holly, the sharp-dressed, nerdy, bespectacled, Stratocaster-wielding, hiccuping singer-songwriter and bandleader of the crickets, the sleekest, slickest, most streamlined group in this whole crazy new world of rock and roll. So many solid gold classics. That'll be the day, not fade away. Peggy Sue, so many, just 22 years old and the first of the rock and roll legends to go down in flames. Now everybody knows Buddy, the king of the nerds with his thick black glasses and boyish smile. The uncoolest of the cool, but with songs and style that live on. He's the man who inspired the Beatles and the Stones. His four-piece electric band is the prototype for the beat explosion that comes in his wake. There's been a Buddy movie, books and documentaries. The songs, they never fade away. They're a soundtrack to so many lives. But what do we really know about Buddy? Somehow, of all the founding fathers of rock and roll, none is quite as hard to pin down. Not because Buddy was elusive or enigmatic, it's simply because he came and went so fast, burned so brightly, then vanished into the horizon. Buddy was a star for all of 18 months, before tragedy froze him in time. 
His life's as short, focused, and straight to the point as one of his own hits. Death was almost an encore for him, framing him forever as a rock and roll pioneer, a young genius ripped from us when he was just getting started. What would have become of Buddy had he lived? No one can say. One thing we do know, Buddy was always in a hurry. To get famous, to get rich, get married, to get to the next gig. Maybe if he'd just slowed down, he'd be with us still. Maybe. Where Buddy comes from, there's absolutely nothing going on for a young man of talent and ambition. Lubbock, Texas is a dusty, cotton-picking, bible-belt city in the middle of hundreds of miles of nowhere, where everything's flat in every direction all the way to the horizon. There's no trees and plenty of wind. Back in the 50s, when Buddy's a wide-eyed, short-sighted teenager dreaming of stardom, Lubbock is segregated, highly religious, and dry as a bone. There's 200 churches in Lubbock, and no bars. You have to drive across the county line to even get a drink. It's the kind of place where anyone looking for fun better think about leaving. Now Buddy Holly's the most famous son of Lubbock, Texas. There's a statue of Buddy right in the town center. But when he's born, The local newspaper don't even get his gender right, or much else. A daughter weighing eight and a half pounds was born at 6.10 Monday afternoon at Clark Key Clinic to Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence O. Holly of 1913 6th Street. There's five mistakes in that one sentence in Lubbock's Evening Journal. Buddy was born at home, 1911 6th Street, at 3.30 in the afternoon of Labor Day. Monday, September 7th, 1936, weighing six and a half pounds. And he was a boy, obviously. His folks named him Charles Harding Holly after both his grandfathers. There's an E in Holly, but they misspell his surname on his birth certificate. You don't get the impression anyone involved is too concerned about accuracy. Everyone in the family calls him Buddy from the get-go, which is probably just as well. Charlie Holly doesn't have quite the same ring to it. Buddy is the youngest of four children. His daddy, Larry's a construction worker. His mother, Ella's, a housewife. They're hardworking, not well off, live in rented homes. Buddy has 17 different addresses around Lubbock in his short life. But it's a happy household and music plays a big part. Ella sings as she does housework. All the kids learn instruments. There's guitars, violins, banjos, and accordions. Buddy's older brothers, Larry Jr. and Travis, play country music together. And sometimes sister Pat joins in on harmony. The boys make the mistake of taking little brother with them to a talent contest at a school in County Line, a town 30 miles northwest of Lubbock, population 400. 
The Holly boys are confident they've got the small town kids whipped. But then Buddy wants to get up and have a go too. Five years old with his toy violin, Buddy Holly hollers a gospel song, Did You Ever Go Sailing? At the top of his voice, and the child prodigy only goes and scoops first prize of $5. There's no stopping him after that. Buddy goes from fiddle to piano to steel guitar. He gets a gold top Gibson acoustic at 11. By the time he's a teenager, he's playing with a fellow schoolboy, Bob Montgomery, billed as a duo, Bob and Buddy. They play on the street and in school, in car lots and outside grocery stores. Lubbock's not a musical town, but somewhere that flat and that dull, it doesn't take much to stir up a scene. Bob usually takes lead vocal. Buddy's the harmony guy. They play country and western, bluegrass and gospel. They're good enough to get their own 15-minute once-a-week slot on local radio. They open each show with Buddy's first instrumental composition, Holly Hop. Buddy's not what you would call a rebel. He's polite to his elders and goes to church. But he's got something about him that's a little bit maverick. A skinny kid with terrible vision. He makes fun of the jocks, plays his guitar every chance he gets, and tells everyone he's going to be famous. Not like big fish in small pond famous, like Hollywood famous. Buddy's going places. He gets himself a motor scooter, and by 16, he's driving the family Oldsmobile. Buddy and Bob add double bass and steel guitar to their ensemble, and Buddy graduates to frontman. With a guitar style halfway between rhythm and lead. They add some RB songs to the set, the kind of exciting new music you can only pick up on black radio stations on the edge of town. They play honky tonks, roller rinks, and out of town dive bars. They'll drive anywhere to get a gig. One time, they drive 600 miles to Shreveport to try and talk their way onto the famous Louisiana Hayride radio show. The director of programming tells them exactly what he thinks about that. So they load their guitars back in Buddy's car and drive 600 miles home. But Buddy's not going to be deterred. He talks his family into lending him money to buy a Fender Stratocaster electric guitar. Buddy's got an amplifier. He's tuning up and tuning in. He's a switched-on high school teenager, and he can hear the way music is changing. Then, Elvis comes to town. On June 3rd, 1955, 6,000 kids pack into the Fair Park Coliseum to see the Memphis Flash live and in person. Elvis Presley is not a national sensation yet, but his hyped-up rockabilly sound is stirring the South. Buddy's at that show, and it changes everything. Next time Elvis comes to town, Buddy's the support act. He's playing rock and roll, but it's not the wild adrenaline rush of Elvis the pelvis. Buddy and his band lean into pop hooks and country melodies. 
Elvis is sex and energy. Buddy's got skills and songcraft. Elvis looks like a Greek god. Buddy's the boy next door. There's something in that yin and yang that's going to shape the way music develops over the next few explosive years. Elvis and Buddy even become fast friends and Buddy drives Elvis around in his Oldsmobile whenever he's in town. Elvis has a manager, Colonel Tom Parker, and he can see something in the kid with the geeky glasses, so he introduces him to one of his pals, a talent agent in Nashville. Next thing you know, Buddy's got a solo record deal with Decca, but he's not quite there yet. Trouble is, his new mentors hate rock and roll. They think it's a youth fad that'll blow over any minute. Their plan is to turn Buddy into a country star. They drop the band, put him in with session players, cuts a couple of singles that don't go anywhere. Buddy gives them a new song, That'll Be The Day. But Decca don't think it's worth releasing. After 12 months, they dump Buddy back where they found him. It doesn't dent Buddy's confidence though. He's still the hottest thing in Lubbock. He's got his own fans, chief amongst them, a girl called Peggy Sue Gershon. Buddy's got a new band made up of the hottest local musicians. A quartet with Buddy on lead guitar and vocals, and they need a new name. They're all keen on a doo-wop group called The Spiders, and think maybe they should also name themselves after an insect. So they come up with The Beatles, that's two E's, no A's. But Buddy's not sure about it. He thinks people might want to squash them. He prefers crickets, an insect at least noted for his singing. The crickets hook up with a producer in Clovis, New Mexico called Norman Petty, who's got a clean sound Buddy admires. They re-record That'll Be The Day, the way Buddy hears it in his head, with a high tempo, a hiccuping vocal, and backing singers adding harmonies. Norman sorts out a one-off single release with a small Decca subsidiary, Brunswick. Six months later, it's number one on both sides of the Atlantic. After that, records come fast and furious because Buddy's a man in a hurry and he's got some catching up to do. He releases some singles as The Crickets and some as Buddy Holly because that way he can put out twice as many records. He's got a song called Cindy Lou but renames it Peggy Sue in honour of his biggest fan. Peggy's dating his drummer, Jerry Allison, who whips up a storming backbeat. When Oh Boy follows it into the charts, Buddy ends the year as Decca's biggest selling artist. The crickets are on the road non-stop through 58. They tour with Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, Gene Vincent, the Everly Brothers, the Drifters, and everywhere they go, it's the crickets who get the biggest encores. They tour Australia and England, among the fans calling for more are two young Liverpool musicians named John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Buddy's impact on the wannabe rockers of Britain is massive. For the first time, here is a group who look like ordinary guys playing all their own instruments and writing their own songs. John and I started to write because of Buddy Holly. That's what McCartney will say. Him and Lennon are so impressed. They even give their own band an insect name, the Beatles, with an A. 
and the obsession stays strong. There are 13 Buddy Holly songs in the early Beatles live sets. The first time John, Paul and George go into a studio, they record their version of That'll Be The Day. And it's not only them. The Rolling Stones' first hit single in 1964 is a cover of Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away. In Manchester, a group go the whole hog and name themselves the Hollies. But that's all to come after this short break. Hello, Rockstar listeners. It is Tom here. Now, I'm one of the writers on the show and was behind quite a few of the episodes, ones like George Michael, John Lennon, Donny Hathaway and Otis Redding. I wanted to tell you quickly about DistroKid, who we've partnered with to provide Rockstar listeners with a special deal that we think you will love. Are you a musician and wondering how you can get more bang for your buck with your music? Well, get yourself on DistroKid. That's D-I-S-T-R-O-K-I-D. DistroKid is revolutionising the music business. It's the easiest way for musicians to get music onto places like Spotify, Apple, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube. Well, you name it, they can get it there. You get unlimited uploads. You'll enjoy more features than any other music distributor and you'll get to keep 100% of your earnings. Here are just some of the things that it lets you do. Okay, easily pay your collaborators with a special feature called Splits. Send huge files to anyone with their InstaShare feature. Make mini videos to use on your socials. And stop sneaky thieves stealing your music and using it without your permission with their Distro Lock feature. There's also an app where you can see your DistroKid account in one place. Check your Apple and Spotify stats and withdraw earnings. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So head to the Apple Store or Google Play to download it. And here is the best bit. They're offering you guys a special deal. Just go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash death of a rockstar to get 30% off your first year. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash death of a rockstar for 30% off your first year. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Buddy's got places to go and things to do. He buys himself a Cadillac and Ariel Cyclone motorcycle. He's a man on the moon. In June, on a visit to his music publisher in New York, Buddy claps eyes on the company's gorgeous Puerto Rican secretary, Maria Elena Santiago. Buddy spends the day flirting, asks Maria out the same night and proposes in a restaurant. Do you want to get married now or wait until after dinner? Asks Maria. Buddy's always in a hurry. They get married six weeks later at the Holy Family home in Lubbock. While he's back in his racially segregated hometown, Buddy and Maria pop into a local store where she orders an ice cream cone. The waitress ignores her. 
What's going on here? demands Maria. Buddy walks up to the counter and asks politely for an ice cream. The waitress serves him at once. Buddy hands it to his new wife and says quietly, It's just the way things are around here. But that moment seals Buddy's exit from Lubbock. There's been talking of building a studio and setting up his own record label where he can write and produce for other artists. Instead, the newlyweds head back to Manhattan and move into a Greenwich Village apartment. There's troubles ahead though. The first wave of rock and roll is crashing. Elvis is drafted into the army. Buddy's singles aren't hitting so high in the charts anymore. He's tired of relentless touring. He sees the way music is shifting and he's got an idea to try something a little different. Buddy sets up a new session in New York with an orchestra to record a song he's written for Maria, True Love Ways. It's a beautiful ballad. There's dimensions to his voice and writing you've only seen glimpses of before. While he's at it, Buddy records a handful of new songs and plots his next move. And it's a bold one. Maria's been looking over the books and the numbers don't add up. The man Buddy trusted to take care of his financial affairs hasn't been playing straight. After all his tours and all his hits, Buddy is broke and the royalty money is tied up in accounts controlled by Norman Petty. Buddy tells the crickets they need to split with Petty. They're going to set their base in New York and produce their own records. Petty gets wind of the mutiny and convinces the crickets to stick with him. Buddy confronts Petty in the studio. I want my money, Buddy demands. I'd rather see you starve to death first, says Petty. Buddy breaks down crying on the drive home. The crickets are over. So Buddy's down, but he's not out. He's got a bag full of songs that he's recording on a two-track machine in his apartment. And he tells everyone they're his best yet. They're going to put him back on top. But meanwhile, there's a cash flow problem. So Buddy does something he really doesn't want to. He signs on as a headliner for an all-star package tour. A 24-day meander across the Midwest in the dead of winter. The Winter Dance Party. That's what it's called. Even the name sounds ominous. It's a tough tour in rough conditions, sub-zero degrees, snow and ice and blizzards. And no one's riding around in one of those big, luxury, purpose-built tour coaches that carry bands today. The whole party is sharing a converted school bus. They sleep on the luggage racks. Maria's pregnant, so she stays at home. And so, the scene is set. At 9am on Monday, the 2nd of February, 1959, the Winter Dance Party bus sets off from Green Bay, Wisconsin, with all performers on board. It's a 350-mile journey to Clear Lake, Iowa, the 11th gig of 24. It's bitterly cold, the heaters have broken down, and for much of the journey, the coach driver can't go any faster than 25 miles an hour because of ice on the road. 
Spirits are low. Buses have been breaking down throughout the tour. They've already got through four vehicles in less than two weeks. It's so cold after a show in Duluth, Minnesota. Buddy's new drummer gets frostbite. They have to leave him in the hospital in Michigan. For what will be the last shows of their lives, Buddy plays drums with the support bands and Richie Valens sits in on drums for Buddy. He's got another of his musical protégés on bass, a Lubbock singer-songwriter called Waylon Jennings, who'll go on to become a giant of country music. And Buddy's good friend, Tommy Alsop on second guitar. He's calling them the new crickets. At a service station, Buddy phones his lawyer in New York, only to find out Norman Petty is still refusing to release tens of thousands of dollars of his earnings. He was mad, Waylon Jennings will say later. The maddest I've ever seen him. They finally roll into Clear Lake at 6 p.m. after nine hours on the road. Buddy, Richie and the Big Bopper grab a bite as the band sound checks. The next gig is at the Armory Moorhead, Minnesota, 500 miles away. They've got another coach lined up, their fifth, to drive them after the show. That's going to be a 10-hour drive if they're lucky. But Buddy's got an idea. He wants to charter a plane. That way, he can get to the hotel, get a good night's rest, get his laundry done, and be fresh and fighting fit for the next gig. So Carol Anderson, manager of the Surf Ballroom, calls the owner of Dwyer's Flying Services in nearby Mason City, and he negotiates the hire of a light aircraft for $108 to fly to Fargo Airport, North Dakota, close to Moorhead. The pilot is Roger Peterson. He's 21 years old, a year younger than Buddy. Roger's a good pilot. He's got 700 hours on the clock, but the year before, he failed an instrument test. He's done extra training since, but strictly speaking, he's not qualified to fly by instruments alone. But like most kids his age, he's starstruck, and he can't say no to flying Buddy Holly. He clearly has his doubts though, because Roger calls another older and more experienced pilot to ask if he'll take over. That's a non-starter. I'm more of a Lawrence Welk fan, the older pilot tells him. The flight is scheduled to take off after midnight, after the show. And it's a great show. The big bopper gets everyone going with Chantilly Lace. Richie Valens rips it up with his latest hit, Donna. Then Buddy and his new crickets tear the place down. And everyone joins them on stage for a finale of La Bamba and Brown-Eyed Handsome Man. But there's been horse trading going on backstage. There's three passenger seats going at $36 each which is a lot of money in 1958. Buddy's offered places to his pals Waylon Jennings and Tommy Alsop, but the big bopper wants in and makes a side deal with Waylon. Buddy feigns outrage when he hears Waylon staying on the coach. Well, I hope your old bus freezes up, he jokes. Well, I hope your old plane crashes, says Waylon. And that's the last thing he ever says to his friend, Buddy Holly. Meanwhile, 17-year-old Richie Valens is determined to get on that flight. After the show, he's signing autographs and spots Tommy Olsop packing his bag for the airfield and begs for his seat on the plane. Tommy says, 
I'll toss you for it. They throw a 50 cent piece, it comes up heads. Gee, that's the first time I've won anything in my life, says Richie. And by that toss of the coin, one man lives and one man dies. Another strange thing happens that night. The original crickets call Maria and tell her they've had a change of heart and want to get back with Buddy. She says he misses them too and to call him at Clear Lake and she's sure it'll all work out. So the crickets ring the surf ballroom but Buddy's on stage and never gets the message. He's in too much of a hurry to get to the airfield and get out of there. Snow has started falling and there's 35 mile per hour winds. Still, air traffic control clear the flight and somehow fail to pass on a crucial bit of information. There's low clouds, poor visibility, a snowstorm brewing, and the pilot might have to fly by instrumentation alone, for which he is not qualified. The big bopper and Richie Valens buckle up. Buddy's sitting up front. He likes flying and he's been taking lessons. At 12.55 a.m., the plane takes off. Jerry Dwyer watches from the ground as his aircraft levels off south of the airfield and heads northwest to Fargo. As the plane disappears from view, he thinks he sees the taillight descending when they should be climbing, but in the dark and the rain and the snow and the wind, he can't be sure and brushes it off as an optical illusion. The alarm only goes off half an hour later when the pilot fails to check in. The wreckage is found in a field just eight miles from the landing strip. An official investigation will later say the pilot misread the altitude gyroscope in conditions of poor visibility. But that's not what you think about when you hear. You think about their last moments, how they felt, what they thought, when they realized how it ended. News gets out fast. The tragic death of three rock and roll stars is on the wires by 10 a.m. before they've even notified next of kin. Maria Elena is in her apartment in New York, suffering from morning sickness. She turns on the TV and hears about the death of her husband. Maria becomes hysterical. She has a miscarriage. In New York the next morning, 13-year-old Don McLean is delivering newspapers. That's where he reads about the widowed bride and something touches him deep inside. One day it will become the basis of his own classic song, American Pie, drawing on memories of the day the music died. And it's just one of the ways that Buddy Holly remains so present and alive in music. He's the first of the posthumous rock stars even bigger in death than he had been in life. His final hit is a song called It Doesn't Matter Anymore. The first instance of a song becoming a hit after the artist's death. The Buddy Holly story, released a month later, becomes the biggest album of his career, staying in the US charts for over three years. And there's more to come. Buddy was always making music. There's a whole treasure trove of unreleased material, songs of Buddy and the crickets or 
songs featuring just Buddy and his guitar and voice that the label can overdub and turn into new records. The demand proved so great and Buddy recorded so prolifically that new Buddy Holly albums and singles keep coming for the next 10 years. Yet somehow the Buddy Holly story still feels unfinished. There was so much more to come from this brilliant, fast-moving, hard-working, innovative talent. So much music that never got made. Such a stupid, wasteful death, leaving behind so many what-ifs. And the biggest what-if of all? What if the pilot had turned around and said, sorry fellas, the weather's awful, and I'm not qualified to fly in these conditions. But what if Buddy had lived? Would he have had anything like the same heroic status? He was enshrined in death. Then all those bands he inspired went on to take over the world. So let's leave the final words with Keith Richards, who was among the kids roaring for encores when the crickets toured Britain back in 58. Buddy passed it on via the Beatles and via the Stones, says Keith. Listen to any new hit and Buddy will be in it somewhere. He's in everybody. This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Neil McCormick and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell's Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we used Buddy Holly, Learning the Game by Spencer Lee. The Day the Music Died, The Last Tour of Buddy Holly, The Big Bopper and Richie Valens by Larry Lemmer. The Real Buddy Holly by Robert Draper from Texas Monthly, October 1995 and the writer's own articles. The music we use is from our partner's BMG Production Music, but if you want somebody Holly to listen to, go and find Peggy Sue, True Love Ways, and Peggy Sue Got Married, the acoustic apartment tapes. Search for Death of a Rockstar on Spotify and you'll see we've made a playlist with those tracks on it. If you want another episode, make sure you check out our one about Elvis, the most famous man who ever lived. And we're working on a new series called Death of a Film Star, where you'll get the stories of Marilyn Monroe, Heath Ledger and Bruce Lee. That'll be out soon. This is the last in our first series of Death of a Rockstar, but we'll be back soon for series two. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week, 
I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.